be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew. Thanks for joining me and for taking this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Part 1, Chapters 1 to 3, by Jules Verne. In the following chapters, Professor Pierre Aranax tells us of the mysterious creature causing havoc in the world's oceans. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy. And your breath soften. As we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Part 1 Chapter 1 A Shifting Reef The year 1866 was signalled by a remarkable incident, a mysterious and puzzling phenomenon, which doubtless no one has yet forgotten. Not to mention rumours which agitated the maritime population and excited the public mind, even in the interior of continents, seafaring men were particularly excited. Merchants, common sailors, captains of vessels, skippers, both of Europe and America, Naval officers of all countries, and the governments of several states on the two continents, were deeply interested in the matter. For some time past, vessels had been met by an enormous thing, a long object, spindle-shaped, occasionally phosphorescent and infinitely larger and more rapid in its movements than a whale. The facts relating to this apparition, entered in various logbooks, agreed in most respects as to the shape of the object or creature in question. The untiring rapidity of its movements its surprising power of locomotion, and the peculiar life with which it seemed endowed. If it was a cetacean, it surpassed in size all those hitherto classified in science. Taking into consideration the means of observations made at divers times, Rejecting the timid estimate of those who assigned to this object a length of two hundred feet, equally with the exaggerated opinions which set it down at a mile in width and three in length, we might fairly conclude that this mysterious being surpassed greatly all dimensions admitted by the ichthyologists of the day if it existed at all, and that it did exist 
was an undeniable fact. With that tendency which disposes the human mind in favour of the marvellous, we can understand the excitement produced in the entire world by this supernatural apparition. As to classing it in the list of fables, the idea was out of the question. Of the Calcutta and Bernark Steam Navigation Company had met this moving mass five miles off the east coast of Australia. Captain Baker thought at first that he was in the presence of an unknown sandbank. He even prepared to determine its exact position when two columns of water, projected by the inexplicable object, shot with a hissing noise a hundred and fifty feet up into the air. Now, unless the sandbank had been submitted to the intermittent eruption of a geyser, the Governor Higginson had to do neither more nor less than with an aquatic mammal, unknown till then, which threw up from its blowholes columns of water mixed with air and vapour. Similar facts were observed on the 23rd of July in the same year, in the Pacific Ocean, by the Columbus of the West India and Pacific Steam Navigation Company. But this extraordinary cetaceous creature could transport itself from one place to another with surprising velocity, as, in an interval of three days, the Governor Higginson and the Columbus had observed it at two different points of the chart, separated by a distance of more than seven hundred nautical leagues. Fifteen days later, two thousand miles farther off, the Helvetia of the Coppagny Nationale and the Shannon of the Royal Mail Steamship Company sailed to the windward in that portion of the Atlantic lying between the United States and Europe, respectively signalled the monster to each other in 42 degrees 15 north lat and 60 degrees 35 west long. In these simultaneous observations, they thought themselves justified in estimating the minimum length of the mammal at more than 350 feet, as the Shannon and the Helvetia were of smaller dimensions than it, though they measured 300 feet overall. Now the largest whales, those which frequent those parts of the sea round the Aleutian, Kulamak and Umgalich Islands, have never exceeded the length of sixty yards, if they attain that. These reports arriving one after the other, with fresh observations made on board the transatlantic ship Pierrier, a collision which occurred between the Etna of the Inman line and the monster. A procès verbal, directed by the officers of the French frigate Normandy, a very accurate survey made by the staff of Commodore Fitzjames on board the Lord Clyde, greatly influenced public opinion. Light-thinking people jested upon the phenomenon, but grave, practical countries, such as England, America, and Germany, treated the matter more seriously. 
In every place of great resort, the monster was the fashion. They sang of it in the cafes, ridiculed it in the papers, and represented it on the stage. All kinds of stories were circulated regarding it. There appeared in the papers caricatures of every gigantic and imaginary creature, from the white whale, the terrible Moby Dick of Hyperborean regions, to the immense kraken whose tentacles could entangle a ship of five hundred tons and hurry it into the abyss of the ocean. The legends of ancient times were even resuscitated, and the opinions of Aristotle and Pliny revived, who admitted the existence of these monsters, as well as the Norwegian tales of Bishop Pontopidan, the accounts of Paul Hegaday, and, last of all, the reports of Mr. Harrington, whose good faith no one could suspect, who affirmed that, being on board the Castilian in 1857, he had seen this enormous serpent, which had never until that time frequented any other seas but those of the ancient Constitutional. Then burst forth the interminable controversy between the credulous and the incredulous in the societies of savants and scientific journals. The question of the monster inflamed all minds. Editors of scientific journals, quarrelling with believers in the supernatural, spilled seas of ink during this memorable campaign, some even drawing blood, for, from the sea serpent, they came to direct personalities. For six months, war was waged, with various fortune, in the leading articles of the Geographical Institution of Brazil, the Royal Academy of Science of Berlin, the British Association, the Smithsonian Institution of Washington, in the Mitteleusion of Pitterman, in the scientific chronicles of the great journals of France and other countries. The cheaper journals replied keenly and with inexhaustible zest. These satirical writers parodied a remark of Linnaeus, quoted by the adversaries of the monster, maintaining that nature did not make fools, and argued their contemporaries not to give the lie to nature, but admitting the existence of krakens, sea serpents, moby dicks, and other lucubrations of delirious sailors. At length, an article in a well-known satirical journal by a favourite contributor, the chief of staff, settled the monster, like Hippolytus, giving it the death blow amidst a universal burst of laughter. Wit had conquered science. During the first months of the year 1867, the question seemed buried, never to revive. When new facts were brought before the public, it was then no longer a scientific problem to be solved, but a real danger, seriously to be avoided. 
the question took quite another shape. The monster became a small island, a rock, a reef, but a reef of indefinite and shifting proportions. On the 5th of March, 1867, the Moravian of the Montreal Ocean Company, finding herself during the night in 27 degrees 30 lat and 72 degrees 15 long, struck on her starboard quarter a rock marked in no chart for that part of the sea. Under the combined efforts of the wind and its 400 horsepower, it was going at the rate of 13 knots. Had it not been for the superior strength of the hull of the Moravian, she would have been broken by the shock and gone down with 237 passengers she was bringing home from Canada. The accident happened about five o'clock in the morning, as the day was breaking. The officers of the quarterdeck hurried to the after part of the vessel. They examined the sea with the most scrupulous attention. They saw nothing but a strong eddy about three cables' length distance as if the surface had been violently agitated. The bearings of the place were taken exactly, and the Moravian continued its route without apparent damage. Had it struck on a submerged rock, or on an enormous wreck? They could not tell but on examination of the ship's bottom when undergoing repairs, it was found that part of her keel was broken. This fact, so grave in itself, might perhaps have been forgotten, like many others, if, three weeks after, it had not been reenacted under similar circumstances. But, thanks to the nationality of the victims of the shock, thanks to the reputation of the company to which the vessel belonged, the circumstance became extensively circulated. The 13th of April, 1867, the sea being beautiful, the breeze favourable, the Scotia of the Canard Company's line found herself in 15 degrees 12 minutes long and 45 degrees 37 minutes lat. She was going at the speed of 13 knots and a half. At 17 minutes past four in the afternoon, whilst the passengers were assembled at lunch, in the great saloon, a slight shock was felt on the hull of the Scotia, on her quarter, a little aft of the port paddle. The Scotia had not struck, but she had been struck, and seemingly by something rather sharp and penetrating than blunt. The shock had been so slight that no one had been alarmed. Had it not been for the shouts of the carpenter's watch, who rushed on the bridge, exclaiming, We are sinking, we are sinking. At the first, the passengers were much frightened, but Captain Anderson hastened to reassure them. The danger could not be imminent. The Scotia divided into seven compartments by strong partitions, could brave with impunity any leak. 
Captain Anderson went down immediately into the hold. He found that the sea was pouring into the fifth compartment, and the rapidity of the influx proved that the force of the water was considerable. Fortunately, this compartment did not hold the boilers, or the fires would have been immediately extinguished. Captain Anderson ordered the engines to be stopped at once, and one of the men went down to ascertain the extent of the injury. Some minutes afterwards, they discovered the existence of the large hole of two yards in diameter in the ship's bottom. Such a leak could not be stopped, and the Scotia, her paddles half submerged, was obliged to continue her course. She was then three hundred miles from Cape Clear, and after three days' delay, which caused great uneasiness in Liverpool, she entered the basin of the company. The engineers visited the Scotia, which was put in dry dock. They could scarcely believe it possible that two yards and a half below watermark was a regular rent in the form of an isosceles triangle. The broken place in the iron plates was so perfectly defined that it could not have been more neatly done by a punch. It was clear then that the instrument producing the perforation was not of a common stamp, and after having been driven with prodigious strength and piercing an iron plate one and three-eighths inch thick, had withdrawn itself by a retrograde motion truly inexplicable. Such was the last fact which resulted in exciting once more the torrent of public opinion. From this moment, all unlucky casualties which could not be otherwise accounted for were put down to the monster. Upon this imaginary creature rested the responsibility of all these shipwrecks, which unfortunately were considerable, for of three thousand ships whose loss was annually recorded at Lloyd's, the number of sailing and steamships supposed to be totally lost, from the absence of all news, amounted to no less than two hundred. Now, it was the monster who, justly or unjustly, was accused of their disappearance, and, thanks to it, communication between the different continents became more and more dangerous. The public demanded peremptorily that the seas should at any price be relieved from this formidable cetacean. Chapter 2 Pro and Con At the period when these events took place, I had just returned from a scientific research in the disagreeable territory of Nebraska in the United States. In virtue of my office as assistant professor in the Museum of Natural History in Paris, the French government had attached me to that expedition. After six months in Nebraska, I had arrived in New York towards the end of March 
laden with a precious collection. My departure from France was fixed for the first day in May. Meanwhile, I was occupying myself in classifying my mineralogical, botanical, and zoological riches when the accident happened to the Scotia. I was perfectly up in the subject, which was the question of the day. How could I be otherwise? I had read and reread all the American and European papers without being any nearer a conclusion. This mystery puzzled me. Under the impossibility of forming an opinion, I jumped from one extreme to the other. That there really was something could not be doubted, and the incredulous were invited to put their fingers on the wound of the Scotia. On my arrival at New York, the question was at its height. The hypothesis of the floating island and the unapproachable sandbank, supported by minds little competent to form a judgment, was abandoned. And indeed, unless this shawl had a machine in its stomach, how could it change its position with such astonishing rapidity? From the same cause, the idea of a floating hull of an enormous wreck was given up. There remained then only two possible solutions of the question, which created two distinct parties. On one side, those who were for a monster of a colossal strength. On the other, those who were for a submarine vessel of enormous motive power. But this last hypothesis, plausible as it was, could not stand against inquiries made in both worlds. That a private gentleman should have such a machine at his command was not likely. Where, when, and how was it built? And how could its construction have been kept secret? Certainly a government might possess such a destructive machine. And in these disastrous times, when the ingenuity of man had multiplied the power of weapons of war, it was possible that, Without the knowledge of others, a state might try to work such a formidable engine. After the chasse-pots came the torpedoes. After the torpedoes, the submarine rams. Then, the reaction. At least, I hope so. But the hypothesis of a war machine fell before the declaration of governments. As public interest was in question, and transatlantic communications suffered, their veracity could not be doubted. But how admit that the construction of this submarine boat had escaped the public eye? For a private gentleman to keep the secret under such circumstances would be very difficult. And for a state whose every act is persistently watched by powerful rivals, certainly impossible. After inquiries made in England, France, Russia, 
Prussia, Spain, Italy, and America. Even in Turkey. The hypothesis of a submarine monitor was definitely rejected. Upon my arrival in New York, several persons did me the honour of consulting me on the phenomenon in question. I had published in France a work in quattro, in two volumes, entitled Mysteries of the Great Submarine Ground. This book, highly approved of in the learned world, gained for me a special reputation in this rather obscure branch of natural history. My advice was asked, as long as I could deny the reality of the fact, I confined myself to a decided negative. But soon, finding myself driven into a corner, I was obliged to explain myself categorically. And even the Honourable Pierre Aronnax, professor in the Museum of Paris, was called upon by the New York Herald to express a definite opinion of some sort. I did something. I spoke for want of power to hold my tongue. I discussed the question in all its forms, politically and scientifically, and I give here an extract from a carefully studied article which I published in the number of the 30th of April. It ran as follows. After examining one by one the different hypotheses, rejecting all other suggestions, it becomes necessary to admit the existence of a marine animal of enormous power. The great depths of the ocean are entirely unknown to us. Soundings cannot reach them. What passes in those remote depths? What beings live, or can live, twelve or fifteen miles beneath the surface of the waters? What is the organisation of these animals? We can scarcely conjecture. However, the solution of the problem submitted to me may modify the form of the dilemma. Either we do know all the varieties of being which people our planet, or we do not. If we do not, if nature has still secrets in its ichthyology, nothing is more comfortable to reason than to admit the existence of fishes or cetaceans of other kinds, or even of new species, of an organization formed to inhabit the strata inaccessible to soundings, and which an accident of some sort, either fantastical or capricious, has brought at long intervals to the upper level of the ocean. If, on the contrary, we do know all living kinds, we must necessarily seek for the animal in question amongst those marine beings already classed. And, in that case, I should be disposed to admit the existence of a giant narwhal. The common narwhal, or unicorn of the sea, often attains a length 
of sixty feet. Increased in size fivefold or tenfold. Give it strength proportionate to its size. Lengthen its destructive weapons. And you have obtained the animal required. It will have the proportions determined by the officers of the Shannon. The instrument required by the perforation of the Scotia. And the power necessary to pierce the hull of the steamer. Indeed, the narwhal is armed with a sort of ivory sword, a halibut, according to the expression of certain naturalists. The principal tusk has the hardness of steel. Some of these tusks have been found buried in the bodies of whales, which the unicorn always attacks with success. Others have been drawn out, not without trouble, from the bottoms of ships, which they had pierced through and through, as a gimlet pierces a barrel. The Museum of the Faculty of Medicine in Paris possesses one of these defensive weapons, two yards and a quarter in length, and fifteen inches in diameter at the base. Very well. Suppose this weapon to be six times stronger and the animal ten times more powerful. Launch it at the rate of twenty miles an hour, and you obtain a shock capable of producing the catastrophe required. Until further information, therefore, I shall maintain it to be a sea unicorn of colossal dimensions, armed not with a halibut, but with a real spur, as the armoured frigates or the rams of war, whose massiveness and motive power it would possess at the same time. Thus may this puzzling phenomenon be explained, unless there be something over and above all that one has ever conjectured, seen, perceived, or experienced, which is just within the bounds of possibility. These last words were cowardly on my part. But, up to a certain point, I wished to shelter my dignity as professor and not give too much cause for laughter to the Americans, who laugh well when they do laugh. I reserved myself a way of escape. In effect, however, I admitted the existence of the monster. My article was warmly discussed, which procured it a high reputation. It rallied round it a certain number of partisans. The solution it proposed gave, at least, full liberty to the imagination. The human mind delights in grand conceptions of supernatural beings, and the sea is precisely their best vehicle, the only medium through which these giants, against which terrestrial animals, such as elephants or rhinoceroses, are nothing, can be produced or developed. The industrial and commercial papers treated the question chiefly from this point of view. The Ships and Mercantile Gazette, 
the Lloyd's List, the Packet Boat, and the Maritime and Colonial Review, all papers devoted to insurance companies, which threatened to raise their rates of premium, were unanimous on this point. Public opinion had been pronounced. The United States were the first in the field, and in New York they made preparations for an expedition destined to pursue this narwhal. A frigate of great speed, the Abraham Lincoln, was put in commission as soon as possible. The arsenals were opened to Commander Farragut, who hastened the arming of his frigate. But, as it always happens, the moment it was decided to pursue the monster, the monster did not appear. For two months, no one heard it spoken of. No ship met with it. It seemed as if this unicorn knew of the plots weaving around it. It had been so much talked of, even through the Atlantic cable, that jesters pretended that this slender fly had stopped a telegram on its passage and was making the most of it. So when the frigate had been armed for a long campaign, and provided with formidable fishing apparatus, no one could tell what course to pursue. Impatience grew apace, when, on the 2nd of July, they learned that a steamer of the line of San Francisco, from California to Shanghai, had seen the animal three weeks before in the North Pacific Ocean. The excitement caused by this news was extreme. The ship was revictulated and well stocked with coal. Three hours before the Abraham Lincoln left Brooklyn Pier, I received a letter, worded as follows. To Mr. Aranax, Professor in the Museum of Paris, Fifth Avenue Hotel, New York. Sir, if you will consent to join the Abraham Lincoln in this expedition, the Government of the United States will with pleasure see France represented in the enterprise. Commander Farragut has a cabin at your disposal. Very cordially yours, J.B. Hobson, Secretary of Marine. Chapter 3 I Form My Resolution Three seconds before the arrival of J.B. Hobson's letter, I no more thought of pursuing the unicorn than of attempting the passage of the North Sea. Three seconds after reading the letter of the Honourable Secretary of Marine, I felt that my true vocation, the sole end of my life, was to chase that disturbing monster and purge it from the world. But I had just returned from a fatiguing journey, weary and longing for repose. I aspired to nothing more than again seeing my country, my friends, my little lodging by the Jardin de Plantes, my dear and precious collections, 
but nothing could keep me back. I forgot all. Fatigue, friends, and collections. And accepted without hesitation the offer of the American government. Besides, I thought, all roads lead back to Europe, for my particular benefit, and I will not hurry me towards the coast of France. This worthy animal may allow itself to be caught in the seas of Europe, for my particular benefit, and I will not bring back less than half a yard of his ivory halibut to the Museum of Natural History. But in the meanwhile, I must seek this narwhal in the North Pacific Ocean, which, to return to France, was taking the road to the Antipodes. Conseil, I called in an impatient voice. Conseil was my servant, a true, devoted Flemish boy, who had accompanied me in all my travels. I liked him, and he returned the liking well. He was phlegmatic by nature, regular from principle, zealous from habit, Invincing little disturbance at the different surprises of life, very quick with his hands, and apt at any service required of him, and, despite his name, never giving advice, even when asked for it. Concier had followed me for the last ten years, wherever science led. Never once did he complain of the length of fatigue of a journey, never make an objection to pack his portmanteau for whatever country it might be, or however far away, whether China or Congo. Besides all this, he had a good health, which defied all sickness and solid muscles, but no nerves. Good morals are understood. This boy was thirty years old, and his age to that of his master as fifteen to twenty. May I be excused for saying that I was forty years old? But Conseil had one fault. He was ceremonious to a degree and would never speak to me but in the third person, which was sometimes provoking. Conseil, said I again, beginning with feverish hands to make preparations for my departure. Certainly I was sure of this devoted boy. As a rule, I never asked him if it were convenient for him or not to follow me in my travels, but this time the expedition in question might be prolonged, and the enterprise might be hazardous in pursuit of an animal capable of sinking a frigate as easily as a nutshell. Here there was matter for reflection even to the most impassive man in the world. What would Concier say? Concier, I called a third time. Concier appeared. Did you call, sir? said he, entering. Yes, my boy. Make preparations for me and yourself, too. We leave in two hours. As you please, sir, replied Concier, quietly. Not an instant to lose. Lock in my trunk all travelling utensils, coats, shirts and stockings, 
without counting, as many as you can, and make haste. And your collection, sir, observed Concier. We will think of them by and by. What? The Archaeotherium? The Hydrocotherium? The Oreodons? The Kerapotamus? And the other skins? They will keep them at the hotel. And your live Babariosa, sir? They will feed it during our absence. Besides, I will give orders to forward our menagerie to France. We are not returning to Paris, then, said Concier. Oh, certainly, I answered evasively. By making a curve. Will the curve please you, sir? No, it will be nothing. Not quite so direct a road, that is all. We will take our passage in the Abraham Lincoln. As you think proper, sir, coolly replied Concier. You see, my friend, it has to do with the monster, the famous narwhal. We are going to purge it from the seas. The author of a work in quattro in two volumes on the mysteries of the great submarine grounds cannot forbear embarking with Commander Farragut. A glorious mission, but a dangerous one. We cannot tell where we might go. These animals can be very capricious. But we will go, whether or not. We have got a captain who is pretty wide awake. I opened a credit account for Barberousa, and Concier following. I jumped into a cab. Our luggage was transported to the deck of the frigate immediately. I hastened on board and asked for Commander Farragut. One of the sailors conducted me to the poop, where I found myself in the presence of a good-looking officer who held out his hand to me. Monsieur Pierre Aranax, said he. Himself, replied I. Commander Farragut. You are welcome, Professor. Your cabin is ready for you. I bowed and desired to be conducted to the cabin destined for me. The Abraham Lincoln had been well chosen and equipped for her new destination. She was a frigate of great speed, fitted with high-pressure engines which admitted a pressure of seven atmospheres. Under this, the Abraham Lincoln attained the mean speed of nearly eighteen knots and a third an hour, a considerable speed, but nevertheless insufficient to grapple with this gigantic cetacean. The interior arrangements of the frigate corresponded to its nautical qualities. I was well satisfied with my cabin, which was in the after part, opening upon the gun room. We shall be well off here, said I to Concier. As well, by your honour's leave, as a hermit crab in the shell of a whelk, said Concier. I left Concier to stow our trunks conveniently away, and mounted the poop in order to survey the preparations for departure. At that moment, 
Commander Farragut was ordering the last moorings to be cast loose, which held the Abraham Lincoln in the pier of Brooklyn. So in a quarter of an hour, perhaps less, the frigate would have sailed without me. I should have missed this extraordinary, supernatural, and incredible expedition, the recital of which may well meet with some scepticism. But Commander Farragut would not lose a day, nor an hour, in scouring the seas in which the animal had been sighted. He sent for the engineer. Is the steam full on? asked he. Yes, sir, replied the engineer. Go ahead, cried Commander Farragut. The key of Brooklyn, and all that part of New York bordering on the East River, was crowded with spectators. Three cheers burst successively from five hundred thousand throats. Thousands of handkerchiefs were waved above the heads of the compact mass, saluting the Abraham Lincoln until she reached the waters of the Hudson, at the point of that elongated peninsula which forms the town of New York. Then the frigate, following the coast of New Jersey along the right bank of the beautiful river, covered with villas, passed between the forts, which saluted her with their heaviest guns. The Abraham Lincoln answered by hoisting the American colors three times, whose thirty-nine stars shone resplendent from the Mizen Peak, then modifying its speed to take the narrow channel, marked by boys, placed in the inner bay formed by Sandy Hook Point. It coasted the long sandy beach, where some thousands of spectators gave it one final cheer. The escort of the boats and tenders still followed the frigate and did not leave her until they came abreast of the lightship, whose two lights marked the entrance of New York Channel. Six bells struck. The pilot got into his boat and rejoined the little schooner which was waiting under our lee. The fires were made up. The screw beat the waves more rapidly. The frigate skirted the low, yellow coast of Long Island, and at eight bells, after having lost sight in the northwest of the lights of Fire Island, she ran at full steam on to the dark waters of the Atlantic.